could see what I'm going to talk about before I start. Uh, in the week, um, with work, we went to St. Fagan. Now, we have been before, but this time things were different. Now, I got things a little bit mixed up as I do, and um, I, I was under the impression we were going to see an exhibition on what people think life will be like in a hundred years from now. So I was really looking forward to it now. So when we went off there, there was, uh, we were assigned this sort of guide. There was only nine of us, and this guide. And he said, right, follow me. I thought, oh, right, we're going to see this exhibition now. Well, anyway, he guided us into this room. And there was a screen, and it said, Woman from Cal. I thought, oh, I felt quite let down, you know. So anyway, I turned to my colleague and I said, well, what about the exhibition? Not exhibition. I said, the exhibition we're going to see about them, the Jews from She said, you've got that wrong, that's not till May. So I said, oh, right, okay. But anyway, over there was a table with a cloth over it. And um, I don't what's under there. And, then, and there was another thing with a cloth over it. Well, anyway, you started going on about the Celts and the woman. It was very interesting. Well, anyway, you pulled this cloth there, and it was, just, like, it was a replica, obviously, of a skeleton and one thing like that. But what really fascinated me was when you took this cloth off, there was um, Roman armour, there were Celtic outfits, there were swords, there was helmets and everything. And you got a chance to try them on, right? So they took loads of photographs, and I got this Roman armour on, right? And I'm like, this is so heavy, right? Well, anyway, one thing I noticed about the sword, the Celts, right? Their sword, well, I'm not kidding, it was longer than that. Like a child, like a really, really healthy. How on earth they man to fight with those, I never know. But the Romans, they thought were much shorter, something like the length of, of that, and broader, the blades were broader, and I, it got me thinking about swords, right? So this is where I'm going with it. This is a rather pathetic little And I had to glue it because the top fell off. So, I know it's an odd subject to talk about, but the Bible has a great deal to tell us about swords, right? And there is much we can learn and glean from the Holy Scriptures to aid us in our daily walk with Jesus. Now, in ancient civilization, particularly the Viking and Norse cultures, giving swords names such as Thunderclaw or Heart Cleaver was extremely popular. Right? I just can't think of any more, they were the only two I could think of. In English folklore, we learn of King Arthur uh, drawing a sword from a stone and becoming the rightful King of England. The sword was no ordinary one. It was called Excalibur. And eventually it was returned to the Lady of the Lake from whence it came. When someone is knighted or given some other kind of honour, like years ago, I don't know about now, I wouldn't have a clue, right? They were told to kneel 
while the king and queen touched their pools and all the foes at night with a sword to bestow whatever title or honour that was to be given. Now pirates <coughs> were known to carry swords known as a cutlass, while Japanese samurai warriors were noted for their samurai swords. Even the Kurkas carried curved swords. Now in Scotland, it is a popular tradition at Hogmanay, which is a Scottish New Year, to cross two swords on the ground and do the sword dance. I actually done it. And it was great fun. Right? And wore a kilt. Right? So a good many years ago, it was really good fun. Now in books and films, uh, the Lord of, in the, Lord of, the book and the film, The Lord of the Rings, there was a broken sword which had to be remade, so that Aragorn, the rightful king of Gondor, could wield it in a final battle over the Dark Lord and his followers. Now I always also remember when I was younger reading two books in school. Um, one was called The Silver Sword, although I can't remember who the author was. Ian Serrano. Ian Serrano. That's the one. Good book. Right? And also, I read a book, uh, a fantasy story called The Sword of Shinara by Terry Brooks. And there's a film in the series, but I particularly like that one. And, um, and Star Wars fans would be familiar with the sword of the Jedi Knight called Lightsaber. And who can forget that galactic sword fight with Lightsaber with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi? I'm not a Star Wars fan, I only remember the first one. There's an ancient legend in which an envious man called, now I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Damocles coveted the life and rule of a Greek ruler called Dionysus, the Elder. Now Dionysus heard of uh, Damocles' envy, and to show him what it felt like to be a king, he held a great and lavish banquet and seated Damocles in the place of honour. Now seated though underneath a sword that was suspended from the ceiling by a single hair. Figuratively speaking, a sword of uh, Damocles is supposed to be an impending danger that may strike at any time that causes much uncertainty and anxiety. In Genesis chapter 3, verse, um, verse 23 and 24, it says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he had drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I always think that this is one of the saddest passages in the Bible, I really do. Right? Adam and Eve had sinned and the home that they had known, always known, was to be off limits to them. Banished forever from this garden paradise that was full of beauty and splendour and colours that we cannot even begin to imagine. Their immortality was gone and they had begun to age. And worst of all, they had to live on a land that was alien to them. How far 
these steppers from the garden they do not know. But I often wonder if they were tempted to gaze at their former home from a distance. Whether it broke their hearts to, an, um, to be unable to ever enter it again. <coughs> now God in his wisdom saw the possibility of, um, of that happening and took precaution by placing cherubim and a flaming sword to bar the way to the garden and the tree of life. Who could possibly know the regret they felt of what was in their hearts and minds for the rest of their days? In Judges 7, we read of the Midianites impoverishing the Israelites and how an angel of the Lord had appeared to the very fearful Gideon, calling him a mighty man of valour. Gideon probably didn't look like a mighty man of valour and definitely didn't feel like one. But it's not what, what people think and feel about themselves is important. It's what God says. And the same goes for us. If he says that we are victorious in him and that we are his blood-bought, forgiven, spirit-filled children, then that's what we are. With just 300 men, Gideon went to face the vast armies of Midian. They blew trumpets and broke jars with torches inside them. But what they shouted was equally important. <coughs> they had <coughs> a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And God threw the Midianites into confusion and they turned on each other with their swords. God brought about a mighty victory for the Israelites over the vast armies of Midian that day. And it goes to show what great things God can do with little. In 1 Samuel 17, now this morning I was particularly thrilled, but I did have a little um, bit of anxiety because I thought I was going to steal my sermon. Helen came out with something about Goliath this morning. I thought, yes, that's confirmation about my word. So, in 1 Samuel 17, it tells us of how the Philistines gathered their forces for war against the Israelites. Now, King Saul and the Israelites camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to face the Philistines. Maybe in the beginning, they might have thought, yeah, we, we sort them out, boys, you know, they, that they had a chance against the Philistines. But what they didn't know was their enemies had a secret weapon. A giant who was over nine feet tall, called Goliath. Oh, and how he intimidated the Israelites and taunted them until they were shaken in their shoes. However, in the camp was a young shepherd boy. He could have only been Matthew's dad. We don't know to be. Right? Stop. And he had a heart after God. And he'd gone to take provisions for his brothers who were in the Israelite army. And when he heard and saw Goliath, he went to King Saul and offered to face the giant, telling Saul how he had once killed a lion and a bear that had come after his father's sheep. Now David's courage was admirable, <coughs> and Saul wanted David to be dressed in armour 
um, and, and as do they wear bands. But of course, they, they probably would have barely done, you know. Could, and, and heavy, of course. And, and so, instead, but David would not wear the armour. Instead, he faced Goliath with just a staff in his hand, a sling, and five smooth stones from the stream. Now, Goliath mocked him, mentioning uh, David coming at him with sticks. But what David said next sealed the demise of the giant before the stone even struck him. You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. That's sealed. That sealed the death of Goliath, even before that stone struck him. <clears throat> and that is exactly what happened. <clears throat> and David became a national hero. Now that the lesson for us here, that whatever bad circumstances, fiery trials or hard times you may be going through, the battle is not ours, but the Lord. He will give us the victory and he will lead us in triumphant procession. In Isaiah chapter 2, it tells of what the prophet Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. It said that the mountain of the Lord's temple would be established as chief among the, the mountains and all nations would come to it. They would be taught God's ways so that they would walk in his paths. They would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation would not take up sword against nation. War would cease and peace would be prevalent. Mm. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Yeah? Sounds wonderful. <clears throat> Quite a contrast to the world that we are currently living in. Yet in the middle of all the threats of war and conflict, political upheaval and moral decline, in the midst of growing godlessness, we that know and follow the Lord can know his peace that passes all understanding because he is indeed the Prince of Peace. One day, however, the sword of the Lord's judgment will fall on the earth and upon those who have rejected him. Jeremiah 12, verse 12, speaks of Over the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to another. One day men will run to the hills and call for rocks to fall on them, sooner than face the power, splendor and righteous judgment of God. But those who believe will be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if anyone doesn't know Jesus as their own personal saviour tonight, I urge you to ask him to forgive you for all you have ever said, done and thought, and ask him to be the Lord of your life. 
so that you will know him on a personal level and be saved from the judgment that is to come. In Luke chapter 2, which only a couple of weeks ago was read quite a lot in this church, it tells us of the birth of Jesus. It was a birth unlike any other in the history of mankind. God clothed himself in human flesh so that he could live among us and feel what we feel. Eight days after he was born, Jesus was taken to the temple by Mary and Joseph to fulfil the law of circumcision. However, in the temple was an old man called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He had been told by the Lord that he wouldn't see death until he had seen the Christ. When Simeon finally saw Jesus, he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you, now dismiss, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Then turning to Mary, he went on to say, this child is destined to, to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken again, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And that is exactly what happened. When Mary saw her son betrayed, beaten and whipped, tried and found guilty of things that had been fabricated by the crowd who wanted to see Barabbas released. Then she saw her son nailed on a cross to die. A sword did indeed pierce her soul. No truer words were spoken than what came forth from Simeon's lips that day. Years later, Jesus was even known to say, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Yes, people were divided, but over his teaching, it was both radical and controversial. It challenged the status quo of Jewish laws and traditions. It challenged people to step out of their complacency and comfort zones to embrace the message of the kingdom and see their lives wonderfully changed. Even before Jesus' death, we encounter what I call the sword of anger. In John 18, verse 7-10, to 10, we read, Again he asked them, Who is it to do one? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am here, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And poor Malchus. It seemed to be caught up in the middle of it all, didn't it? <coughs> Jesus then told Simon Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword 
will die by the sword. Then Jesus reached out and touched the servants and healed them. How wonderful, isn't it? And yet amazingly enough, the others who were then still refused to believe, even after witnessing a miraculous healing. I can't help but wonder what happened to Malchus. After all, nobody who has been touched by Jesus remains the same to them. It brings to mind the words of an old chorus that we used to sing years and years ago. Jesus came along and he touched me, and I have never been the same. He touched me by his mighty power, glory to his matchless name. My life was full of fear and confusion, my heart was full of sin and shame. But Jesus came along and he touched me, and I have never been the same. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are told that part of the spiritual armour is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How vital this is to us in the spiritual battles that we face every day. The biggest battle is in the mind, and we need the Word of God to counteract the lies and evil thoughts of the enemy of our souls. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In this day and age, in a lot of Christian churches, the focus is on the gifts of the spirit which I would add are important in their own place, or the feel-good factor. But God's word is our handbook for the Christian life. If we go into battle, then we need our sword, which is God's word, Bible, right? And all else may fall away, but God's word stands forever. <coughs> and, um, it brings to mind a little poem by Martin, Martin Luther, which I have quoted before, but I love it. Right? Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. For all my heart should feel condemned for want of some great token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body suffer. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. Finally, in our reading, Revelation 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, His, Jesus' feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Of all the swords we could talk about, there is none greater than the spoken word of God. He spoke into darkness and there was light. He spoke order out of chaos. And he's here tonight to speak peace into our lives, hope, healing, salvation, reassurance, forgiveness, 
Harris. Whatever she was needed is used with Minister as well. All we have to do is to open up our heart to him. We want to speak wonderful things into our lives. He has a destiny for each and every one of us to fulfill. I will end this with this, for it's one of the greatest things he has promised us. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plan to prosper you and not to harm you. Plan to give you a hope and a future. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.